What's up, y'all? Welcome to the Sports Medicine Broadcast. I'm joined with Dr. Effetti. We're at the Sports Medicine Update by Memorial Herman. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be back here again. Um, I've got lots of good help here. So Dr. Effetti was talking about thorax and abdominal injuries in sports. And um, you mentioned, you know, you went to University of Houston and there was this really big case where there was a, a guy that had his superior vena cava basically ripped off. Mm-hmm. Right. So let's go ahead and start with that story and then just a little bit about what what for as a medical perspective what you saw happening there yeah definitely so yeah the story was with uh dj hayden um back in 2013 he was in practice playing cornerback and had one of his own teammates basically run into him as they were trying to defend a pass need him in the chest went down basically felt like he just had the wind knocked out of him but he knew something wasn't right athletic trainers immediately went out there evaluated him uh, called out the medical personnel as well they noticed that he was starting to lose feeling in his lower extremities and becoming pale and they said hey this isn't right so they ended up taking him to uh, the medical center where they discovered that he ruptured his uh, inferior vena cava. And, you know, one of the biggest things that I took from that, and I think, you know, all of us as medical personnel took was having a high suspicion of, all right, you know, he had this uh, big deceleration type injury and he wasn't reacting in the way that you would expect him to, you know. Um, so knowing that, hey, one, something isn't, acting the way that I would normally expect it to and two, knowing that he needs a higher level of care. And, you know, you think about, you know, the cliche term, if you will, time is money, but in medicine, you know, time can be tissue. So you want to make sure that you get the accurate diagnosis, get him to the hospital and uh, the surgical team was able to uh, get him all fixed up. And, you know, he's came back a hundred percent, got drafted by the Raiders and is now playing for the Jaguars. So it's a pretty amazing story of just having that, that quick uh, recognition and uh, getting him the care he needed. Did that's so crazy because you also discussed another uh, video where there was a soccer player, the ball just kicked him in the chest. He ended up dying from commotio cordis mm-hmm. and you know, you wouldn't think, I don't, I've never heard of anybody else with a ripped off inferior vena cava, mm-hmm. right? And so it's just one of those things because it was in Houston, you know, and I've heard uh, John Houston and those guys uh, speak about it before that it isn't, that's not, this isn't the first time I've heard it, but just that injury is crazy. So looking at, at that as an athletic trainer, right? We're not, we don't have the, all the ER, I mean the, yeah, the, the MRI stuff and the CAT scans and all that stuff. So on the field assessment, what are some of the top things that, that we need to do as athletic trainers for thoracic and abdominal injuries? Yeah, I think the big things is, um, you know, one, getting uh, just a visual inspection of the athlete. You know, are they conscious? Are they talking? Um, and then if they're able to communicate with you, uh, getting a succinct history, hey, where do you hurt? What is the quality of the pain? How bad is the pain? Um, Uh, What else is bothering you? Are you having any chest pain, shortness of breath? Are you feeling dizzy? And I think if you combine that, assuming that you saw the injury happen where they may have got hit with what they're telling you, you can start to form a quick differential. It's like, okay, I need to be worried about a lung injury, potentially a rib fracture or a pneumothorax air in the lungs. This may be somebody needs to go to the hospital versus, hey, there may be an abdominal injury that may not be as critical, but I'm kind of forming my mind about is this something that needs immediate attention versus can we continue to uh, evaluate him on the sideline and just do serial exams? All right. So you mentioned PQRST as a way to kind of help evaluate. Can you discuss that? Sure. Um, So so with the um, so basically it's a way of really 
um, of really dialing in your history so you aren't, um, uh, or really, I should say standardizing your history. So with the P, it's uh, getting an idea of what are the um, type of symptoms, what um, what makes it uh, better, what makes it worse, getting the quality of the pain, is it sharp, is it dull? Um, with the R, um, does it radiate? Um, so one of the common things that can happen in certain injuries is you can have uh, referred pain. So for example, you could have a, a diaphragm injury, but then you have shoulder pain. So does it radiate? That'll kind of give you an idea of what's going on. Um, the severity of it, you know, if they say 10 out of 10 is the worst pain I've ever had. And especially if you kind of know your athlete at baseline and say, Hey, if it's a 10, out, if he's saying it's a 10 out of 10 or she, then this is real. Um, and then the timing of it, does it come and go? Is it constant? Um, and also is it um, progressively getting worse versus is it staying the same? Okay, so again, PQRST is a good way to kind of take a look at those mm-hmm. um, and to remember that and, you know, just like the alphabet because everybody's looking if there's a whole bunch of random letters, but when it just follows right along yeah. uh, there in the alphabet, may, makes it pretty easy. Yeah. Um, nice and sequential. <laughs> nice and sequential there. So, all right, some of the other things. Um, we had a athlete a couple years ago that had ended up having a collapsed lung. So we had a, a GP on the sidelines. He mm-hmm. kind of felt around and said, yeah, hey, you might want to go get x-rays later if it's still bothering you. Right, so they ended up, he ended up in the hospital for like three days with a collapsed lung. So what could I have done better to um, evaluate that kid there on the sidelines or really to know that this was a possibility? Yeah, you know, I think the, the biggest thing I would probably say in that situation is I'd rather be overcautious than, than hedge your bets. And what I mean by that is, you know, he probably was having, you know, I assume maybe some, some respiratory symptoms and um, I would rather be overcautious and hey, go to the ER tonight if the x-ray is negative, then, hey, we're okay versus, you know, let's see how it progresses. Um, and I think that that's the only difference because you think about, you know, going to an urgent care or ER, um, x-ray is pretty, you know, a pretty easy thing to get, you know, low acuity. And if it's positive, it's like, hey, we know what to do. Either it's going to be oxygen therapy or observing him to make sure that uh, his oxygen saturation is up or he may need a chest tube and then it's done sooner than later and hopefully he's recovering a lot quicker. So I would say just being overly cautious um, and it's not going to hurt anything. All right, so as far as the the eval on the field, there's there other than, you know, using the stethoscope like mm-hmm. the doctor did mm-hmm. or um, could just squeeze it on the ribs. So real quick, what would you do to evaluate for a fractured rib? Yeah, for a fractured rib, um, I would uh, palpate the area where they hurt. I would also observe them to see uh, what is their breathing like. Are they having a normal breathing rate, um, you know, anywhere from 12 to 15 breaths per minute? Um, does it seem like the they're taking deep, full breaths in and out versus kind of more shallow breaths, uh, which is what happens when they have what's called splinting, just because you don't want to take full breaths, just because as you expand the lung, it's hurting that area of where you may potentially have a rib fracture. And then also look for, you know, actually looking at the skin to see is there any um, bruising or swelling in that area, because that's going to uh, rule in the chance that, like, there may actually be a, a, a rib fracture. All right, and then the... You know, there's always the fine line between sending for too many x-rays or, uh, you know, be, being cautious because there is a possible collapse on um, how what advice would you give me to kind of walk that line a little better knowing? I know you said just be overly cautious, send mm-hmm. them and get the x-ray. But um, you mentioned you were on a podcast, the doctors, and it was talking about the some of the barriers that black physicians have to overcome. Of course, yeah. I work with 
predominantly Hispanic, low-income athletes. So mm. sending them to get an X-ray isn't super easy like it would be here at U of H. You of know, course, of that course. kind of thing. So, so what advice do you have for me in encouraging, providing the best possible care for my athletes? Yeah, I, I think I think that's a great question. Depending on the time point when they had the injury, I think the thing that can be valuable is serial assessment. So, you know, let's say injury happens at time zero, and if we have the luxury that you're gonna be with them at least for the next few hours, you see how do they potentially progress as far as their symptoms? You know, in 30 minutes, are they still struggling to breathe? Are they uh, short of breath? Are the symptoms worse? Are they getting better from when it first happened? I think if it's getting better, you can reassure yourself like, hey, I can be pretty, you know, comfortable that he's going to be able to go home versus if it's getting worse, then um, then it's then you're that athlete is declaring themselves that hey, we really need to get that uh, emergency evaluation. So I think in that case, especially, you know, being conscious of, uh, you know, utilizing resources and, you know, the limitations that that may come from a financial perspective, that that'd be the best thing. All right. So I like that, that if we have time, just continue to monitor over time. If not, then educate them and the parents mm-hmm. saying, hey, if if he's doing OK, if he's staying about the same right now, he says he's a four out of ten. Mm-hmm. If he's staying, you know, five, five to you know, or less out of ten, then then OK, let's wait and see tomorrow. But if he's slowly escalating or rapidly escalating in that, in that pain scale, then hey, just take him right away. Exactly. Yeah. And I think I, I like exactly what you said. You know, the other thing is empowering the parents and, you know, just giving them strict, simple instructions. If X, then Y, take him to the ER, you know, over, you know, when you get home, if he looks like he's breathing harder, you know, you don't even have to go into specifics of, you know, hey, if he's having 12 to, you know, more 18 to 20 breaths per minute versus 12 to 15. No, if he looked like he's struggling, you, you know, you know, your son and daughter better than I do then that, that's when we, then we get them to, for further evaluation. You mentioned a couple of times getting the wind knocked out of you. Um, so obviously that's something that we see a good bit, mm-hmm. you know, with soccer or with anything. Um, so what are some of the things that you feel that we really need to look at there? Yeah, I think there, um, you know, when someone feels like they got the wind knocked out of them, uh, first and foremost, um, when you evaluate them, kind of general inspection, make sure there doesn't look to be any obvious deformity as far as like immediate uh, bruising or anything of that nature, and then do some supportive treatment. So if they have uh, restrictive clothing on, say if it's a football player, for example, loosen their clothing, have them flex at the knees and the hips, because if it's truly just getting the wind knocked out of them, quote unquote, it's usually a spasm of the the diaphragm, and that'll go away with just, you know, having them rest um, from the sport and then getting them comfortable. And uh, outside of that, if you do those things and they still seem not to be that great, then that's when you kind of go more, you know, going back to our history, PQRST, getting a a better sense of, okay, where is your pain? What's the quality? Is it radiating? Um, Because this may be more than just getting the wind knocked out of you. All right. Um, You mentioned a non-traumatic pneumothorax. So how Mm -hmm. does that happen? Yeah. So the non-traumatic pneumothorax, uh, usually this is going to happen non-contact with somebody just exerting themselves, uh, playing a sport. Where we typically see it historically is uh, taller athletes, usually male, thin, and um, uh, increased a chance if you're a smoker. So usually you may just be playing a sport, whether you're playing tennis or if you're just running non-contact and all of a sudden you start to get those symptoms of a pneumothorax, uh, shortness of breath, chest pain with breathing in and out. Uh, you may start to 
um, you know, have faster breathing and also uh, potentially become hypoxemic, meaning you're, you know, not getting as much blood uh, transport, excuse me, more as much oxygen transport in the, in the blood and starting to turn blue. So in that case, it ends up being the um, same thing where you would want to get them to the ER, get the x-ray to definitively determine um, if they have a pneumothorax and if they just need supportive treatment with oxygen versus do they need a chest tube. Interesting. All right. And then with a pneumothorax, um, let's just kind of cover that real quick, like define that. And then what's the initial plan of action for me, the athletic trainer Mm -hmm. on the field? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So pneumothorax is basically where uh, you have a, a collapse of the lung. And when you look at the chest wall, and the lung, you have air that basically uh, goes between those two surfaces, um, air where you don't want it to be. And that air can cause a lot of breathing issues because then the lung is not able to expand uh, the way you would want it to and you're not able to get oxygen. And when you don't have oxygen, you start to decline. So as far as um, immediate management, if you suspect a pneumothorax, uh, just a a regular pneumothorax, if you will, um, then you're wanting to get um, you wanted to get them either to uh, the ER via uh, private transportation if they're stable, if they're you know if they're struggling breathing, but they look fairly okay. But if you see if it seems like that um, you know they're really starting to decline, then you want them to get there via EMS. Um, and the one thing that is rare that you may need to do as an athletic trainer is if you suspect a tension pneumothorax, which is basically a pneumothorax that is now starting to progress to where you're really putting a lot of pressure against the trachea, against the heart, and you may actually have um, like a like a hole that communicates with the outside, like in the chest. In those areas, you may uh, do what's called a, a needle decompression, where you basically put the needle in the second intercostal space, kind of if you had draw a line from the middle of the clavicle on down and just put it in there right above the rib, and then you should hear some air come out. Um, that may be a media thing you do, but that's someone who's looking like, all right, this person is, uh, not going to do well in the next five minutes if I don't do anything, assuming you don't have a close, uh, medical center or like an ER near you. All right. So along those lines, as an athletic trainer, I'm not trained to do that. So mm-hmm. doing that, is that stepping beyond my training, even if it's to save a life? Yeah, it's it's a great question. I would I would highly advise against it. You know, this is one of those ones. Uh, you know, when I was talking in my talk that unless you were just you know in a rural place and the nearest uh, you know ER a place where the athlete could get treatment is just you know far away more than than what may be good for that athlete um then that's the situation you would do it but i think you know more likely than not you're is you're not gonna need to, to to get to that point so i i would i would avoid it i think uh you know it's kind of one of those if you're in the wilderness and, <laughs> and you're two miles away from civilization then you might do it but all right <laughs> all right um one of you again that you mentioned commotio cordis mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. that you know you sh- everybody hears about little leaguers with the baseball coming right back at them yep, yep. Um, but i've never I've personally never heard of it with a soccer ball. And like you said, that, that athlete ended up dying. They did CPR for like 40 minutes. Um, so one of the things that you mentioned in your talk was just be mindful, be watching, be ready. And then if something seems wrong, then it probably is. So discuss a little bit more about the situation. Yeah. So, yeah, with Commotio Cordis and especially uh, with this athlete, had a soccer ball hit to his chest, seemed very non-assuming. But I think the thing uh, that you notice, at least, you know, if you're kind of observing him, is that he had this immediate 
completely went limp, collapsed on his face. And that's, you know, not normal. You know, sometimes if, you know, say if you're a soccer player or somebody else who's flopping, if you will, or you may kind of fall and you may brace yourself, but to go completely limp, um, you know, in a split second, that's where you, your antennas go up and say, hey, something's not right. Let me immediately just go out there, evaluate them. Um, and in that case, uh, if you do have a commotional cordis, whether it's somebody get a, a baseball hit at them and they have that just immediate lifeless type collapse, that's where you're wanting to do your ACLS or uh, advanced cardiac pulmonary support with CPR and if you have an AED available trying to get those leads on them as soon as possible because what happens is uh, that that trauma to the chest basically throws the heart out of rhythm um, and kind of causes it a deadly arrhythmia. And then in that same situation, if it's something that you suspect like that, you mentioned that some people, I don't know what you call it, you said it was about one foot above them, basically like a like a heart thump or something like that? Yeah, yeah. So it's called the precordial thump. And basically, yeah, if you kind of have your fist about a foot above the middle of the chest and kind of uh, just do one thump really hard on the chest, it's been shown that that's the equivalent to about 25 to 30 joules of, uh, or the equivalent of like a 25 to 30 joule shock, um, similar to AED if you didn't have one nearby. So at least it's something that, you know, there is a chance that you could restore the regular rhythm of the heart and get them out of that deadly arrhythmia if you don't have AED nearby, so. Interesting, and then you mentioned also just the importance of having the AD, AED uh, within three minutes, and that means on, applied, like ready to shock within Exactly, three exactly, yep, yeah, yeah, so at least, ha- you know, getting that as soon as you notice, you know, you're kind of directing someone to get the AED, someone else performing chest, chest compressions, and the sooner you can get the AED on there and get the shock, the higher the chance of survival goes up. All right, and then now gets to the, the little bit, I guess more difficult as we, mm-hmm. as you were talking about the abdominal, you know, one of the things you said this looking at the spleen and again, focusing on athletic trainers, what do, what do, what am I going to see? What do I need to know to evaluate and when do I need to put, Hey, we need to send them. Yeah. I, I think, um, I think, uh, acutely, um, the concerning potential splenic injuries or kidney injuries is you're going to have uh, that mechanism of action, that blow to the to the left upper left upper abdomen or to one of the flank regions, and you know pain that's either progressing. You kind of notice an obvious deformity as far as any bruising or trauma, and then the other thing too is uh, just in a general sense, you see. Uh, you know, we kind of think about vital signs, you kind of see them just declining as far as, all right, they're breathing really fast, they're seeming dizzy, pale, uh, which may indicate that they're becoming hypotensive, their blood pressure is dropping. Uh, Those are the cases where it's like, hey, we got to get them to the ER. Um, Sometimes it can be a little bit more difficult with those injuries because some people have slow progression. Um, For example, I think uh, I was talking about Jason Witten when he had a splenic laceration. He got hit in a preseason game in his flank they took him out the game you know he didn't feel great but as the evening progressed he kind of felt like you know his stomach just felt really heavy he kind of felt lethargic so then that's when they said like hey let's go to the ER so he was more slow progressing versus some people may have a pretty quick decline that you would get him get him to the ER so you know kind of like we spoke on earlier in relation to um, you know recognizing the pneumothorax kind of giving those instructions you know whether it be to a parent or the or the athlete themselves of you know you don't look uh particularly bad now everything seems stable you're talking you know you have some discomfort let's monitor it if you're getting worse and it's really progressing in a bad way then that's reason to get evaluated and so that timeline with this like a spleen laceration is 
probably going to be within 24 hours because you said he got hit in the game and then by that night he was already in the hospital correct yeah yeah i think it'll definitely be within 24 hours because uh you know the reason why it can be delayed is the spleen can um can basically kind of capture some of the the bleeding itself but at some point that bleeding is gonna be enough to where it's um you know your overall blood pressure is not going to be as great and you're going to start to become symptomatic gotcha All right, and then um, you mentioned a stomach or intestine rupture. So have you ever seen that? I have not. Yeah, I have not. Yeah, I think that's one that at least I've only seen in the in the textbooks. Um, but, you know, that one I think is, you know, one you have on your differential, if you will, but it's probably not going to be the reality. I think if someone did have a, 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 a kind of a stomach or an intestinal rupture, that's somebody who's going to be declining probably within a minute, you know, just looking – you know, horrible, ghost white, fever, um, breathing fast, uh, tachycardic as far as their heart rate. And I was just like, hey, 100%, we got to get them to the ER and, uh, and then just be cognizant of, you know, is there anything you could do before then as far as, you know, should they potentially go into a cardiac arrest? Do you need to do a CPR, AED, that type of thing? But yeah, but yeah, very rare. I think it's, you know, you see that more in, uh, you know, more high speed accidents outside of sports. Um, you know, some say someone who falls off of a horse or, you know, gymnastics like a, um, a fall from a tall height. All right. And so something like that, you said, is going to be pretty immediate mm-hmm. if there's a stomach rupture again. Um, is there going to be that that immediate swelling and like stiffness in the abdomen or is it just the mostly the physical the or the outward signs like the the paleness yeah yeah great question um they'll, they'll definitely have the outward signs but in the abdomen you will probably notice uh, some swelling you'll um you'll have a, a rigid abdomen um and you'll also um have what we call uh, guarding so you know if you like try to press their stomach um the you'll feel the abdomen getting more rigid and they'll usually ha- even have what's called rebound tenderness where not only when you press does it hurt, but when you let go, it hurts a lot more as well. Gotcha. All right. Um, and then I think that's all the other questions I wrote down. Is there anything that you feel like you would really like athletic trainers to know about thorax, abdominal injuries that you may not have covered or that, you know, just in our conversations, it kind of spiked your... Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I think the biggest thing, uh, you know, I, I wanted to hopefully not try to get in so much of the nuances of, uh, you know, some of the management per se, because I think it ends up kind of going more into, uh, you know, the, the physician's hands, whether it be ER, or the sports doc. But I think the biggest things is just, uh, you know, having that uh, immediate suspicion of an injury, whether you think it's small or big, getting a good history, um, getting a physical exam. And then, you know, once you get that differential diagnosis, like, okay, I think it may be this, you know, what are the things that I can do on the field um, versus, you know, do we need to get this patient or the the athlete to the ER or do we just kind of monitor them uh, periodically, whether it's during that practice, whether it's during the school day, whether it's during a game. Gotcha. Sean, you come over here real quick. Eddie, um, is number three on? Can you turn it on? I don't know if you can turn it on while you're recording. No? No? Okay. Well, Sean, come over here. All right, so real quick, Sean does a lot with rodeo, and so uh, I've seen guys get stepped on with bulls, and so I just mm-hmm. want to let Sean mm-hmm. talk for just a minute about some of the stuff that he's seen and, and yeah, kind of what your thoughts are there. So, I mean, obviously in the in the rodeo setting, you get you get a lot of 
things that can yeah. pop up. You get feet, horns, all sorts of stuff. Um, potentially can get kicked, um, can get things like that. So for for us, obviously, that we have some of the, the different types of, like I know you had talked about some of the flak jackets yep. that Cam yep. Newton wore for, yep. for some of that. We have some of the, some of the protective stuff. Obviously, for thorax, thorax, all that, that is a big worry for us. Mm -hmm. So for us, we typically, I mean, it's, it's daily that we're getting somebody that's, that's getting hit there, that's getting stepped on there, that's getting, so, I mean, we're making sure to be very thorough with our, with abdominal sounds, abdominal, um, you gotta get, make sure that your ears are really good. And I think personally, one thing that athletic trainers I've seen can do better is make sure that hey let's practice those abdominal sounds i mean right, right. is there is is there a way that you know other than like obviously just have have doing it through school through doing it through medical school and doing it through residencies and stuff like that that we can get better at that or or ways that we can hey this doesn't sound right mm -hmm. yeah yeah great question you know one of the things i i was even curious about when i was doing the talk is at least you know say just utilizing a stethoscope at least how comfortable mm -hmm. athletic trainers are with that and if that's part of y'all's training but i think um you know, just listening to a lot of normal bowel sounds and knowing what a normal abdominal exam is like. So then when you have anything that's abnormal or or even kind of taking note of, you know, some of those, uh, I imagine in, in the rodeo, like the people who have had serious either intestinal type injuries and noting what that exam was like. It's like, okay, I know what a rigid abdomen is like or I know what it is to, to lose bowel sounds and just being cognizant of that. Uh, but, you know, overall, I think, you know, just get an idea of like, all right, what is a, a normal abdominal exam, whether it's uh, palpation, um, you know, listening to see if there's things there or not and kind of the, kind of the same with the thorax. I, I know uh, for the lungs, obviously, mm -hmm. we, we probably do better at, hey, listening to, to lobes, listening to lung sounds and mm -hmm. stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And that was one of those things that for me, I had to pick up and and really start getting into and getting i guess jazzy about with yeah, with yeah. like learning l learning abdominal sounds and stuff like that yeah so i guess how do you one of the things that i try to do too and you i know you mentioned this was anytime that i have somebody that gets stepped on anywhere around that area i, I give them my warnings i give them the um urine warning hey mm -hmm. make sure that when you pee in the morning or when you pee here in about an hour Let's make sure there's no blood there. Yeah, Here, here's yeah. my, here's my, whatever, the things that I do. What are the warnings that, I guess, what are the one warnings that you give a kid when they go home? Mm -hmm. And then also how, how long for me, I, I like to keep somebody around potentially until I see that they start to get better. Right. Like if they've, you know, we're not in that, I'm not in a 10 pain mm -hmm. and I'm not in a, terrible state right now right. okay I, I still question you uh, obviously i'm 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 doing blood uh, blood o2 i, I, I mean I, i'm or i'm doing like um i'm losing my train of thought here <laughs> but i'm i'm doing a lot of different different things for sure, for a, sure. or sorry a pulse ox i'm mm -hmm. doing pulse ox i'm doing um different stuff like that mm -hmm. and watching those vitals as well as well as blood pressure and things but what are the things that one you would talk about and two that you would, or one that you would talk about and tell them about, and mm -hmm. two, what are the things that you would just keep an eye on as you're watching an athlete prior to letting them leave? Yeah, so I think, um, yeah, definitely uh, if there's, 
from a respiratory standpoint, if there's any progressive of those symptoms, if we notice that the O2 sats for whatever reason are starting to drop is the thing I keep an eye on. I think also uh, just establishing a good baseline and say, hey, if it seems like you're starting to have a heavy feeling in the abdomen, if you're having any, uh, you know, blood with urination, um, if you're starting to have um, all of a sudden uh, nausea or vomiting, at least that wasn't there before, not able to, to tolerate food or liquids. Um, if you're starting to feel uh, dizzy or lightheaded and that's not something that's just transient and, and resolve itself, uh, then, then those are the things that at least, especially if I end up sending them home, that I would kind of warn against and be like, hey, you know, these are kind of the simple things that I want you to to be cognizant of and um, and if any of those things pop up then that that's where we may need some further evaluation and I think the, the other big thing too is if you know especially if I was on a sideline or you know athletic trainer I was working with is just to try to have close uh, clinic follow-up assuming they don't declare themselves to need more emergent treatment later so probably within a week's time all right so we're gonna go ahead and wrap it up right there um we got the next person coming in. And so uh, somebody wants to get a hold of you, Dr. Fetty, how are they going to do that? Um, they can uh, reach me at my email, uh, benedict.mylastnameifetti at memorialherman.org. And I am on Twitter, though I'm not as active as I would like to be. Uh, I-M-B-E-N-O-F-F-I-C-I-L. I'm beneficial. Uh, yeah. <laughs> All right. So this is sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash thorax injuries. I am Jeremy Jackson again, sportsmedicinebroadcast.com slash thorax injuries. So I'll have a link to Dr. Effetti's email in there and hopefully I can find the uh, Twitter and link that on there as well. So Dr. Effetti, appreciate you coming here, talking to athletic trainers and, uh, you know, helping us improve the patient care, but then also joining us here on the sports medicine broadcast. Oh yeah. Thank y'all for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you, sir. Yeah.